Sorry I didn't get a pedicure. What? Uh, my toes. I'm sorry. I'm not looking at your toes. I'm looking at your cervix. Right. Now I kind of wish you were looking at my toes. Welcome back to You Know What. I'm your host, You Know Who, and we've got a perseverant, dedicated, and ambitious guest on the show today. And even though she won't be able to hear it, no matter where you are right now, walking down the street or sitting on the bus, please give a very warm welcome to Ida Darish. Ida, it's great to have you here today. How's it going? Thanks, Jeremy. I'm super excited for this. It's great to be here. Thank you for coming on to the show. Really great. So tell us about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Ida. I use pronouns she, her, and I'm actually a PhD candidate. I just fast-tracked to my PhD, and I'm in experimental surgery at McGill. Nice. And I'm actually working to study patient-specific differences in heart disease with Dr. Renzo Ciceri. So that's kind of my PhD project. That's kind of a little bit about my research. And I've really been super, super into science communication ever since I started grad school, actually. I've won second place at the McGill three-minute thesis competition. And then, yeah, thanks. (laughs) And I've also won first place at the National Canadian Cardiovascular Congress last year, which was also super exciting. Apart from my research, I actually am also a co-founder and CEO of Gynoware, which is a medical device startup. And we're focusing on developing a biopsy device, which will hopefully help women to make more conscious choices about their gynecological health. So... That's kind of a little bit about me and a few fun facts. I speak three languages, so I speak Russian, English, and French. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorite activities is to go uh, mushroom picking. Oh, interesting. What kind of mushrooms? Actually, don't answer that. (laughs) Amazing. Thank you. Thank you for that lovely intro. That was great. I, I, I feel like we won't be able to get into all of the different facets of your life at this point. I'm sure there are things you couldn't even squeeze into the intro, but I'm very excited to dive into as much as we can. So from what I understand, you completed an undergrad degree in cell biology. And then you moved into experimental surgery. So you said you fast-tracked. So you spent one year in the master's and you took that project to go for the next four or five in a PhD. So I actually took the full two years. So there's a couple of options when you're Mm fast-tracking. The minimum amount of time that you spend in a master's is exactly as you said, one year. But I actually wasn't exactly sure for my master's project in the first year, year and a half. So Mm -hmm. I actually only fast-tracked towards the end of my second year which is also a possibility. There is really not much of a difference. But you didn't want the master's anyways? Like once you were already kind of a year and a half into it, you didn't want to be able to just walk away with something at least? So that's a really good question. And I've actually been asked by a lot of people. I actually started my sort of PhD project in my first year of my master's. And I was kind of juggling two projects at the same time. And as the second year was going by, I kind of dedicated probably 90% of my time to this new project, which I thought was more exciting, more interesting. So I was kind of faced with the decision, do I drop this much cooler, much more kind of (laughs) high intensity project and finish up my master's or get a publication out of my master's simultaneously as I'm working on this new project and kind of fast track to my PhD. So I kind of took the latter situation. I thought it was a better outcome for me. And Mm -hmm. I, I am very happy with that decision, actually. That's interesting. I, I don't think I've had anybody on the show who's done like a, a full two years of master's without actually ended up going for the degree. So cool to know actually that that's an option that you can do the fast track later on. So you had two projects, yes. one of which you've abandoned entirely. I wouldn't say abandoned. I would say it's 80% done. I just need to put in that last effort to write the paper and to get mm-hmm. it out. So in life sciences, these papers don't take that long to write, but a lot of 
tiny little experiments that have to be done here and there do have to get completed. And so I'm trying to squeeze those in while I'm doing my main project, which is related to my PhD goals for the next, you know, three um, <laughs> years. <laughs> Okay, so before we hop into the PhD stuff, yes. I just want to maybe get out of my head this this curiosity about the master's work that you said you're yes. almost finished. Can you just give me like a quick synopsis of of what the project was focused on and what is coming out of it at this point? Yeah, absolutely. So for my master's, I was very curious about heart repair. So hearts in general, unless you're you know a newborn infant, they can't recover from any kind of injury. And this is why heart attacks are such a devastating issue in our society because once you have a heart attack, you know, your heart works at maybe 40%, 30% of its original capacity. You wow. can't do a lot of the things you used to do, a lot of things that you love to do. And so for me, it was very interesting to kind of develop a new therapy to be able to kickstart this repair mechanism, which is not actually viable or existing at this point. So I started investigating stem cells because I know that stem cells do produce these regenerative signals. And I was specifically looking at stem cells in a 3D shape, because in my mind, I was like, well, you can fit more stem cells in a 3D shape than a 2D area. Um, that was Great kind logic, of, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> that was my, my high school self kind of logicking it out. And it actually turns out that, yes, indeed, if you collect the substance, the kind of jungle juice is kind of what I call it, the, 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 mm -hmm. <laughs> this regenerative secretome in, in kind of a little bit more scientific terms. If you collect it and you add it to heart cells or blood vessel cells that come from the heart, you can actually see them get better at different functions. So I was kind of interested in seeing if they're able to grow, if they're able to repair themselves. And that's actually what we saw in my experiments. So I have a couple of experiments to complete that project, but it mm -hmm. does have a very definitive answer on the cellular part. Yeah. I'm trying to picture, is this kind of like this magical medical Play-Doh that you're toying with, where you can kind of put a little bit of it, you can dab some onto some heart cells and it ends up fusing together to create healthier tissue? So it's actually not really like Play-Doh, it's more like a bit of an injection. So it would be kind of just the liquid that you mm -hmm. inject. So in my case, I don't actually work in animals, I work with cells. So instead of injecting, I just pour it on top of them and then I see the cells become happier, become healthier and be able to repair themselves if I induce injury in them. So okay, that's... I like this this wording of happy and healthy. Very yes. good on the accessibility front. But I do want to maybe break this down. Happy and healthy cells, what does that look like? Or how do the happy and healthy cells differentiate from the non-happy and non-healthy ones? How can you yeah. tell the difference? Yeah, absolutely. So we'll talk about heart cells first. So in heart cells, very specifically, you can have different kinds of signaling. So this is the stuff that happens inside of the cell. So the, the thing I like to look at is, for example, calcium signaling. Calcium is incredibly important in the heart. This is something that is crucial for our existence and our survival. And so when a heart cell inevitably gets damaged, the calcium signaling goes haywire. It's not able to do it even to a fraction of the degree that it was able to do it. Gotcha. And so if you add some regenerative potion or regenerative secretome, whatever you like to call it, that would be able to recover its uh, original function. Okay, right. So f from what I, I know about the heart, it's this like, it, it's this big muscle that has yes. different chambers in it, but it's also completely innervated. So there's lots of different nerves and there is, there's a communication between the heart and the brain and there's electrical signals that tell the yes. heart when to pump and when not to pump. So I would imagine if the communication within and between the cells is, as you say, going haywire, this could lead to like arrhythmias and irregular heartbeats and stuff like that. 
Yeah, so you're absolutely right. And actually, that's one of the main limitations of my study that unfortunately, when you're looking at a cell model, you can't mimic all of these wonderful processes that we see in the in, in the human and that mm-hmm. we can even see in an animal model. We, we can't actually recreate those in a dish. However, we can actually look at in, in much more detail what happens in the cells, which might get us a little bit of information as to why certain things happen in, in humans. So that's kind of uh-huh. what I was trying to do in my first project. So in terms of using stem cells in an application for like heart surgery or, or heart failure or cardiomyopathies, like, are you one of the first people to, to bridge this like heart and stem cell research? Or is, is there already this, this growing domain? And where does your research fit into it? Yeah, so I wish I was the first. That would be, <laughs> I I would be very famous and very rich. Um, no, no, I'm just <laughs> okay. I'm just kidding. So, essentially, no, I'm I'm definitely not the first one to be using stem cells. And actually, ever since people started discovering what stem cells are, how they function, and so on, people became very interested in what they do in different organs. So this research has been going on for maybe twenty ish years. Got it. The thing is there are different types of stem cells. So there's not just one unique stem cell, there's stem cells that come from fat, stem cells that come from muscle, there's really a whole myriad of them. And so in my case, I was actually working on stem cells that come from the placenta. Mm -hmm. The reason why that's cool is because A, not a lot of people have worked on them, and B, it's because they don't have the ethical concerns and connotations that some other stem cells might have. So for example, if you take stem cells from an embryo, that obviously raises a lot of concerns and a lot of groups are actually against that. Whereas from the placenta, because it's a tissue that's essentially discarded after birth, there's really Mm -hmm. little ethical concern and the benefits are are fairly impressive. So you're like recycling the the biological refuse. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Good for you. So there's a whole sustainability side of your research. (laughs) Yes, yes, absolutely. I never even thought of it that way, but you're actually on the dot, yeah. Look at that interdisciplinary, didn't even know it. Amazing. I love the, the reusability yeah. of something that would have otherwise been discarded. I like the fact that it's the heart and the placenta come from the human body, but they're far away and they're part of different systems, but we can still bridge the gap to create new science, which is, which is awesome. So congratulations for joining into a already developed field, but still sounds like there are emerging ideas as well. 20 years is not a very long time. So I'm sure there's amazing science to come out of that as well. We've already had an episode, episode 68, with Jonathan Brassard on stem cells. So for anybody listening, if you want more information on stem cells, you can get a bit more background there as well. So maybe we can start zooming in now on your PhD research. Mm-hmm. Give us a bit of a transition uh, from that master to the PhD. What changed and what stayed the same? To be honest, the transition, it was coming for a long time, but it was also very sudden in the sense that I already had a lot of responsibilities. So my lab isn't that large. So we're very few Mm -hmm. people in the lab. So I already had supervisory roles. I was trying to manage different types of projects. But then when I went into my PhD, it felt like a whole new world. It was like, oh man, the the responsibilities are are, uh, much higher. The stakes are higher. And so I was introduced to this project in my first year of my master's. So my supervisor actually came up to me and just asked me, do you want to be part of this collaborative effort called the Heart in a Dish study? And I was like, that sounds awesome. Tell me more. Heart in a dish. Yeah, it's it's catchy. Cool. And it's uh, it's essentially what it advertises itself to be, which is kind of our long-term goal of being able to generate heart cells or hopefully heart tissue in the future 
in a mm-hmm. laboratory setting where we can study it. And we can't so, do that yet. So not not in a very good way. So a lot of a lot of groups are working on something similar. However, mm-hmm. what we're doing is that we're making it with a much larger patient biobank, which means that you know we're collecting samples from patients uh, at a much higher rate than other labs in the world. And another mm-hmm. thing is that. So far, other labs haven't been necessarily successful in making it a representative model of the human heart specifically. So we're kind of struggling on trying to get that uh, to that point. Yep. So you're making happier and healthier versions of what's already out there. Exactly, exactly. And, and we're also studying the not so happy and not so healthy because that's, all, that's actually even more important because we need to understand why some people are going to have a heart attack and are going to react excessively poorly to this heart attack, whereas others might recover maybe a little bit better. So kind of gaining an insight into that is also very important. So this may be a bit of a tangent, but you said earlier that there are different kinds of stem cells. Mm -hmm. Are there different kinds of heart cells? Yes, absolutely. There's uh, there's a lot of different heart cells. Yeah. Let's get an idea of what some of those are. I'm very curious. Once we're talking about the heart, yeah. I want to get a mini anatomy lesson. What's the diversity down there or up there or in there? Yeah, no, there's there's a lot of different types of cells. So I'm, I'm not going to mention all of them, but there's definitely okay. uh, a few types that are very important to know. So the first one is called a cardiomyocyte. So that's what you think of when you think of, you know, the beating, the contracting, the kind of mm-hmm. muscle part of the heart. So that's called a cardiomyocyte. Those are the cells that are the most damaged during a heart attack. So those are the ones that we want to study most. Okay. And another thing to note is that there's different types of cardiomyocytes. So you actually mentioned the electrical signaling, the coordination that these cells might have in in contracting. And so Mm -hmm. in the heart, there's an atrium. So there's two atriums actually in in the human heart and two Mm -hmm. ventricles, which are kind of the meaty bottom part of the heart. So yeah, so there's different types of cardiomyocytes. And then another type of cell that I personally am super fascinated with is the endothelial cells. So those are actually the blood vessel cells that line the different blood vessels in the heart. And those are also very important when we're talking about repairing damage in the heart as well. Even though they aren't as damaged as the, the myos. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Endo's not as damaged as myos, exactly. Endo's not as damaged. Okay, all right. But, yes. but there's still, So that's actually really interesting. What about a heart attack? damages these muscular cells more? Is it because when you have a heart attack, you're having these like extremely intense contractions? No. So it's actually because when, when a heart attack happens, these cells are deprived of oxygen. So when a heart attack happens, there's often a blockage in the blood vessels of the heart, which okay. means there's no blood, which means there's no oxygen that's delivered to those cells. Mm. And the difference between the myos and the endos is that the myocytes, so the the muscular cells, they actually don't have an ability to grow, to proliferate. The endothelial cells have that capacity to a certain extent. Of course, it's kind of limited, so we also want to boost it. There's a lot of talk about, you know, a thing called angiogenesis, which is essentially blood vessels growing. Not so much talk about cardiomyocytes growing. So that's kind of the, the main difference and why we prioritize cardiomyocyte research. Yeah. Right, because they can't fend for themselves. Exactly, exactly. When they're dead, they're dead. Oh, that's very sad. That's very, <laughs> very morbid. Let's pick things back up. So dead cells aside, do you work at all with like completely functioning hearts to try and see what's going on in a, in a functioning heart so we know like what the baseline is to work towards? Yes. So actually in our study, I've mentioned we are aiming for a very large patient database. 
So mm -hmm. we're aiming to have 250 patients recruited. We're about halfway there. And mm -hmm. I would say at a ratio of one to 10, one is the healthy donors that we ask for their blood samples to be able to study their cells. And we have 10 who have these heart diseases because we do want to focus on them, but we want to have a baseline, essentially a control to compare to. This makes it feel like there are a lot more people who have problems with their hearts. Is that the case? Is your 10 to 1 kind of representative of like the natural distribution of heart functioning in society? Or are you specifically looking for like an, an over representation of these hearts with issues? Yeah, so, so honestly, if we were 1 to 10, we would be abysmally screwed as the human race. So, <laughs> thankfully, <Okay. Nice. laughs> thankfully, yeah, yeah. Thankfully, this is not the case. But heart disease is the main killer and the main cause of disease worldwide. So, you know, it could be up to one in five to one in three people who have heart disease, which is very large as a number. Mm -hmm. In my study, the reason why we're using a lot fewer controls is because the goal is to kind of elucidate different types of differences that happen in patients in disease compared to the controls. So we don't necessarily need to have such a large sample of healthy people. Yeah, we don't care about the healthies. They're fine. Exactly. I'm like... They're like the endothelium. <laughs> they can fend for themselves. Exactly, exactly. Do we find endothelium elsewhere in the body or is that only a heart thing? Yeah, every single blood vessel in your body is lined with endothelial cells. Oh, nice. They're a little bit different in some ways. Endothelium in your arms, endothelium in your face, they're going to be quite different than the ones in your heart, but they all have the same origin. Yeah. Speaking of which, you have a bit of endothelium on your face. So you might want to yes, take yes, yes, yes. You have yes. actually a lot of, it's, it's all over your face, endothelium. <laughs> it's everywhere. It's oh, everywhere. It's, it's disgusting, but also excellent. So... In terms of the field that you're in, like how would you how would you describe it? Is there like an umbrella term for like heart failure research? I would say just research in in the cardiovascular field. So mm -hmm. so for me, when I introduce myself, let's say uh, someone accosts me at a conference and they're like, "What do you do?" <laughs> I'm like, "Well, I'm a cardiovascular researcher." Okay. Yeah, yeah. And then if they ask for okay, more, cool. then I give them a bit more. Uh, right. So that's the umbrella term because. Yeah. I know that the cardiovascular system isn't just the heart. It's all yes. of the vascularity throughout the body. Absolutely. So Absolutely. if I would ask you further, okay, so you work in cardiovascular research. Are you the cardio or are you the vascular? Is that kind of another distinction? Yeah, it definitely is. And I would say I went from more vascular in my master's since I looked at heart cells, but I also looked more at endothelial cells. But I definitely shifted more towards the cardio later on for my PhD project. Mm -hmm. But I do think that personally, they go hand in hand. You can't really study one without eventually studying the other. Is it the kind of thing that people like vacillate between the two throughout their careers? They'll go back and forth? I wouldn't say they vacillate. I would say some people prefer one to the other. And that's that's perfectly normal. That's part of our you know society with everlasting you know specialization and, mm -hmm. and so on. But I do think that people need to work in tandem in both of these halves of the same field to be able to get some tangible results. Because if you, let's say, resolve the myo issue, you're still going to have some endothelial cell issues that mm -hmm. might still contribute to more myocyte issues down the line. Yeah. So in terms of what the current therapies are for people who have heart attacks... What's available and like, what are you bringing to the table here in terms of maybe not during your PhD research, but like what, what ultimate therapy 
are you working towards, if any? Yeah, so there's a lot of therapies, but there is no cure. And that's the distinction that I always make when I when I talk to people, because people think that there's all these millions, even billions of dollars that are being poured into research to generate therapies. So there's a ton of them. I'm not going to go through them just because the, the names are kind of complicated for myself and I don't want to make a fool out of myself. But I couldn't um, even remember myocyte 60 seconds after <laughs> you said it. So yeah, let's do that. <laughs> yeah, but the, basically the point is people have been throwing darts at a board for years and years and years to try to get a therapy that miraculously works and it has not worked. One of those reasons is because, let's say in clinical trials, these medications, these things that are hailed as the new you know, lifesaver for humanity, mm-hmm. they're tested on a very small portion of the population, which isn't necessarily representative of people who have heart disease in the world. And so these clinical trials have amazing results. Everyone's happy. They get FDA clearance, and then they end up not working as well in the population. So... Mm-hmm. In my case, my goal is twofold. So one of them is to develop a patient biobank so that we can test these medications on a diverse population of patients and then try to predict a little bit better what will work in society and what won't. Before we go to goal two, what is a biobank? Yes, yes. So a biobank is actually kind of like a storage. So essentially you collect different samples from people. In our Mm -hmm. case, we take their blood and then we isolate specific cells that we want to keep. We make them into stem cells and we keep them in a frozen tank. And the frozen tank is essentially a biobank. When you need a specific patient sample, you pull those stem cells out of there and you can create virtually any cell of the body. You just pop it in the microwave, hit the popcorn button and just give it a go. That's basically it. <laughs> Maybe I just you make... don't subject the cells to microwaves right away. but <laughs> I just make popcorn all day. That's what I do. <laughs> I was actually going to ask you what, what your day-to-day looks like. So now I have a crystal clear picture of that. Just a lot of messing around. Yeah, yeah. So I actually, I come in in the morning. Because we're doing essentially a study on patients, it can get a little bit unpredictable. So when they come in, I have to be available. Mm-hmm. And I'm delivered patient blood. I'm able to isolate cells through very kind of simple methods. This is something that's been done in a lot of different studies. And then I have the, I would say, grueling task of two months to kind of generate stem cells out of those cells. Two months? So, yes. It takes that long to do it? I don't know. I, I feel like uh, stem cells, bim, bam, boom, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I This is what I thought before I came into this project. And then uh-huh. I realized the bim, bam, boom is, uh, is two months. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. Okay. Maybe we won't get into that whole process. I do want to pull us back. You had two goals for your product, two of them. What's the second? Yes, yes, absolutely. So the second goal is, of course, to not just test medications that already exist. That's kind of more related to goal number one. But the second goal is really to be able to have access to this resource, to be able to hopefully create a miraculous drug that actually does work and is a cure for people. Because as I said, it's not sustainable as it is right now. It's not sustainable from a economic point of view, you know, mm-hmm. heart disease is a huge burden on society and it's not sustainable from an emotional, you know, physical point of view for the patients because they know that it's basically a death sentence, maybe not right away, but in a couple of years. So hopefully it'll push towards a novel therapy that actually works. If we do work with these biobanks though, and we find particular kinds of therapies that work for particular kinds of cells, this kind of sounds like personalized medicine, which from what I understand is actually even more expensive and difficult to maintain economically. So how do you reconcile that? 
Yeah. So personalized medicine is kind of the new clickbait uh-huh. title in uh, in all of medicine right now. All of the fields are kind of racing towards that, using that term. But to me, what's really important is to kind of highlight trends. So personalized medicine on a individual to individual basis, I don't think that's necessarily realistic in the near future. However, mm-hmm. having an idea about certain demographics reacting to a certain medication in a certain way, now that's something that we can actually get behind and actually save money. Because then we're not going to be using a very expensive drug on a subset of the population that might not necessarily react to it. We'll actually be able to predict that in a dish, in a laboratory setting. Mm-hmm. And then we can move on with our lives and try another medication on these people instead of testing it on them kind of like guinea pigs. When you say we want to get these kind of broad demographic understandings, mm-hmm. what kind of demographic lines are we drawing on? Like we're talking about different kinds of heart attacks or like men versus women or what? Yeah, that's that's a great question. That's actually part of what I'm trying to figure out right now. Okay. So part of the challenge in figuring that out is that you want significant statistical power. So what that essentially means is figuring out if your results make sense in a, in a, in a relevant way for society. So, of course, 250 patients, it's, it's a huge amount of work, but it's not necessarily <laughs> representative of everyone. So, Is that just you, by the way, doing the 250? Like, that's just like your work? It's uh, me and my, uh, who I affectionately call my minions, but they're actually my lab mates. They're wonderful. They're uh-huh. the best support the, the world could offer. So it's just us and 250 samples. Yeah. Excellent. Shout so. out to the lab mates. Yes, absolutely. not just yours, but all the lab mates out there. Give yourselves a big pat on the back. Yeah, yeah, that's a, the, the the family that we found, not that we initially had, but that stick with you, you know. Yeah, we won't say anything damning about our lab mates. We love them. Yes. So yeah, so so back to the demographics. So for me, I think cardiovascular research has not investigated drug reactions in women nearly enough. So mm-hmm. I think sex, biological sex, is the first demographic that I would like to kind of investigate. Of course, different types of cardiac heart diseases are also something that is very important. So did it happen because of alcohol abuse? Did it happen because of genetic reasons? You know, those kind of things. We can also stratify patients by that standard. Mm -hmm. And other kinds of things like, for example, ethnic background. There's not a ton of research on people who might come from indigenous communities, for example. That's also something that we were very much looking forward to doing and that we would actually be one of the first studies to do that. Awesome. Wow. Very nice. I'm always curious about the demographics because you did bring up a good point very often. Like I think you mentioned a few minutes ago, like we do these studies and we get great results, but then they don't generalize because we're looking Mm -hmm. at one population. Maybe we're looking at just like white males, for example. Mm -hmm. And so then you try and distribute this therapy to everybody else and then we're all screwed because we're not all white males. Exactly. Yeah, no, it's like you kind of assume that people with a specific set of hormones that are coursing through their body is gonna rea- are going to react the same exact way as someone who has completely different types of hormones. That's not something that our body, which is this infinitely complex machine, like that's not how, unfortunately, it works. So, mm-hmm. And even, let's say, with age, that's another factor. With age, right. our hormones also modulate. They also fluctuate. So it might not necessarily just be men versus women, it might be, you know, younger men who are also susceptible to heart disease versus older men, which are overstudied in this in this field currently. So. Right. And then we, of course, have the issue of taking correlational data and then finding causality in it. Yes. Shout out to episode 73 on causality. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, 
Wow. Okay. That's, that's great. Actually, you know, maybe even to just kind of tie in this like demographic discussion here, you said that you want to do more work on understanding how the female population differs from the male population to transition smoothly and suavely into gynoware, which sounds like something that has pretty much all to do with women. Gynoware, you quickly mentioned it at the beginning. I want you to give me a little bit more of an idea of like what your involvement is in gynoware, where you see gynoware going in the future and anything else that you think might be important for us to know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Gynoware is my brainchild, my creation over the past, you know, two years. I'm very proud of it. So before COVID, before all of this lockdown stuff, I actually had the opportunity to go and shadow some gynecology doctors in the procedures that they were doing. Okay. And an issue that was raised quite commonly, actually, was the fact that up to 70% of women actually throughout their life will develop this specific type of tumor that's called a uterine fibroid. So these uterine fibroids, they, they're as diverse as, you know, the, the population they're in. So they can be small, they can be big, they can be very debilitating, they can be asymptomatic. You really, you really don't know what you're going to get. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, especially with the fibroids that are troublesome, society and I guess the medical field as a whole has been kind of moving and shifting towards minimally invasive procedures. So these fibroids have been operated on, have been excised in a way that was minimally invasive. The problem started in 2014, where this lady who came to the hospital with what doctors assumed were fibroids, she was operated on in a minimally invasive way, which involved them going through a tiny little incision in her belly and taking out the tumor. So what happened was that she actually had a cancer. The reason they weren't able to detect that it was a cancer is because currently there's no way of differentiating the specific uterine type of cancer and fibroids. So they just kind of assumed because fibroids were so common that it was a fibroid and that actually caused her to have her cancer spread and and she actually died from this procedure. And so because of this whole issue, there has been a huge rise in invasive surgeries as a direct response. And so now women are stuck with not only do doctors not know whether it's a cancer and a fibroid, which obviously brings very significant psychological burden, but now they're also exposed to much more severe, much more invasive surgeries. So one of them that I would like to mention is the most common one. So it's a hysterectomy. Mm-hmm. Hysterectomy is the removal of a woman's uterus. So obviously that entails not being able to have children again. That involves some hormonal changes as well sometimes, which can be very debilitating and so on. So it's a very sad reality that we're in today. And Gynoware kind of wants to fix that. And as a response, we're trying to develop a biopsy tool. That's kind of the, the gist of it. We're trying to basically develop a method, develop a, a methodology, a procedure where we can go in in a way that does not spread any cancer if the person has cancer. Essentially go in, take a little chunk of the tumor and be able to get it analyzed by other doctors and to be able to tell before the surgery if it's cancer or if it's not cancer. Mm-hmm. It's amazing that a, non, like a, a minimally invasive procedure can actually spread the cancer. Yeah. You, would, you would think that the minimally invasive procedure would do the least damage. Yeah. But from what I picked up there, it's the one that is more invasive that actually leads to less spreading, which yeah. then also leads to plenty of other problems. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and the way I would explain it is that the invasive surgery is making a very large incision and just removing the entire organ all at the same time, which just picturing it is it can have pretty intense physical repercussions on the person. But essentially, you're not cutting into any 
potentially cancerous tissue. Whereas a minimally invasive surgery, you do a little tiny incision, which is probably the size of your pinky, and you go in with tools and you essentially chop up whatever area that is affected. But if you chop something up, that means that cells are being spread everywhere. And if there is, is a cancer in that tumor, that means you just let the cancer have access to basically all of your organs. That's insane. Yeah. Well, I'm really glad that you're working on something to help us differentiate between these fibroids and cancerous tumors, because that's serious business. Is this the kind of thing that we see all throughout the body where we have these ambiguities? I would say that in urology, there has been a lot, a lot, a lot of development for prostate Mm -hmm. biopsies and so on. So the rate of prostate cancer of of, of it being deadly uh, has been reduced quite significantly. But in gynecology, there's really been a lack of innovation and a lack of push for these kinds of biopsy solutions. So I would say in other organs, there is a lot less ambiguity because there is a lot more research and a lot more innovation. Got it. But there was some point in the past where we weren't sure we did the the requisite research, we could now differentiate it, and now we're better off for it. So we just got to spread the love. Exactly, exactly. So, So let's say in Gynaware's case, best case scenario, we developed this tool, we put it on the market, it's not going to be a solution that fixes it right away because people still have to develop guidelines to differentiate these tumors even outside of the body. But the first step is really to get a piece of that tumor out of the body in a safe way. And that's Mm -hmm. how biopsies for prostate cancer and non-cancerous tissue has started. They took 10 years of research, 10 years of publications, and they finally got to a point where it has saved some lives. So I'm hoping to contribute to that in gynecology as well. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming that we don't need to reinvent the wheel every time either. If, if you said these two fields of gynecology and urology are kind of adjacent, not only physiologically, but in terms of what their focuses are, then you can take what's already been discovered in one and tweak it for your needs. Exactly. That's, that's actually an amazing point to make because that's exactly what we're doing. We're adapting a technology, a concept that already exists in other fields, not just in urology, in enterology, which, you know, looks more at the stomach, for example, mm-hmm. in other fields, like in, in lungs as well. There's a lot of devices that use different types of biopsies to make sure that the person doesn't have cancer or if they have cancer to be able to operate on them. So we're just using the same exact concept where we're adapting it to the anatomical constraints of the female body. Mm-hmm. And of course, we're also trying to make it as personalized as possible because Different women have different types of fibroids. Some of them are deforming their uterus. Some of them are asymptomatic. And this is something that we want to address as a, as a startup. Absolutely. And I look forward to seeing how the startup develops over time. It would be really interesting to follow that. I will definitely put a link to your website, to your LinkedIn, wherever people can go to find out more about Gynaware as well. I think that'd be really cool to spread the love and so people know what you're doing. Yes, yes, please do. Please. Uh, Excellent do support women's issues like this. It's very important. 100%. That's, that's part of the reason why we're having you on today, so people know what's going on. I feel like we've, we've got a, a pretty good picture of your research up until now, a little bit of the side stuff as well. Is there anything that we've missed? No, honestly, I think you've covered it wonderfully. I, I had an amazing time. I hope I did educate or, or, or make people interested in the stuff that I love, that I like to do every day. So yeah, no, this is wonderful. I'm sure you did at least inspire one individual who, if they're listening right now, will send you an email because your email address will also be linked in the show notes. So please do reach out. Ida, I assume you'd love to hear from the listeners. And so I would. So I would. Start, start flooding Ida's inbox now for the low price of $0 
and spread the love. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Ida. It's been equally pleasurable to have you on the show today as well. Thanks for sharing your knowledge and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you. You have an amazing day too and take care of your heart. That's the most important part. <laughs> always do, always do. Thank you so much, Ida. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Abstract Coal in the Future of Science. Always a pleasure creating and discussing and having you join me. If you like this episode or if you've got problems with the episode, regardless anything in between, I want to hear from you. You can shoot me an email, abstractcast at gmail.com. You can touch base on Instagram at abstractcast. And if you've got an Apple ID, a review would be so appreciated. If you've got ideas for future episodes or are a graduate student yourself, you should definitely hit up my inbox. Now it's 2022, so we're not releasing weekly episodes anymore, but we still will be releasing content this year, so keep tuning back in and have a great rest of the day.